Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast, a podcast that's produced for Strategy International, a global think tank and consulting firm uh, that brings together great minds from all over the world to discuss, analyze uh, and uh, debate issues of global interest uh, like international policy, uh, strategy, defense, economics, technology, the economy, the environment and much, much more. Speaking of great minds, we have another uh, great guest today on the show. Uh, Farid Mirbagheri. Uh, he's an academic, a former professor of international relations. Uh, he's held the dialogue chair in uh, in Middle Eastern studies at the University of Nicosia in Cyprus. He's the co-founder of the Cyprus Diplomatic Academy, and his latest books uh, are entitled "War and Peace in Islam" and "The Historical Dictionary of Cyprus." Uh, in addition to all that, we're very lucky at Strategy International to have him uh, as a senior consultant for West Africa. Farid, thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Uh, uh, very, very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. How are you? Is everything okay? Everything's fine. Thank you very much. Thanks again for your time. Uh, I just want to start this off uh, uh, on, a, on a lighter note, uh, Farid. Just tell us, you know, for the people that are listening or watching, a little bit about your background, mostly how you became interested in, in studying Middle Eastern politics. We obviously, we follow the politics in the region. We have been following uh, for a long time. And uh, for people like yourself, uh, you've been following the developments in that region for much longer. It doesn't seem to ever find uh, a calm period or those calm periods last very little um how how did you get involved and what was it that sparked your interest to study the politics of that region um i i left well i originally come from iran i i grew up there up to the age of 14 when i left i went to the uk and uh stayed there for 20 years i finished my education and then uh, moved to Cyprus. Um, and in Cyprus, uh, as you said, uh, started teaching at university and also worked for a think tank, uh, uh, Center for World Dialogue, which also worked on issues relating to this region, West Asia. And uh, here I am. Um Tell me a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, the, the region specifically, and obviously you have a lot of uh, knowledge uh, and experience in studying uh, and analyzing the developments in the region. One of the, um, I don't want to say shocking, but one of the developments recently that got a lot of people questioning um, the, the dynamics in the, in the region was uh, the very recent deal that China brokered between Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran. Mm -hmm. um i don't want to get into the details of that because of course it's still at, a, at early stages we're just talking about um re-engaging diplomatic ties and nothing really has happened uh, so everything is still in the works but given the context 
of today's global politics, the war between Ukraine uh, and, and Russia, um, China's growing interest in getting involved globally, uh, especially in the Middle East. Yeah. What is your opinion about outside powers, for example, Russia, uh, the U.S. even, and China um, in shaping uh, the politics in the Middle East? You know, what, what, what impact do you think their actions have on the region or have had on the region? Uh, yeah, fine. It's just, let me please start with, I'd rather call it West Asia. Um, uh, and of course, if you also want to include North Africa, uh, fine. But uh, in West Asia, um, there are um, huge sources of energy, oil and gas. Uh, it's also uh, strategically very important because the oil and gas that's produced goes from a very narrow strait, Straits of Hormuz, then goes through the Suez Canal. Both of these are extremely important to world trade in, in general. It has a huge population. Um, we are talking about, if we include North Africa, we're talking about roughly around 20 countries. We're talking about uh, I don't know, several hundred millions of people. Um, and strategically, um, economically, uh, it's a very important region. Uh, Sir Harold Mackinder, some hundred years ago, or so said that anyone who wants to control the world must uh, try and control uh, the Eurasian heartland, which is West Asia. Right. So that goes to show partly why this region is so important, apart from the fact that nowadays it's become a hub for militant groups, mm -hmm. religiously uh, motivated, and also it's home to the longest lingering conflict uh, that we have, that's the Arab-Israeli dispute. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a, a light at the end of the tunnel, and and I use that very lightly because, you know, in the past, every time we've seemed to have hopes for some uh, peaceful developments, it ended up not uh, uh, happening. But with the last American administration and the Abraham Accords that were signed and all the countries that adhered to those um, uh, to, to, to that agreement, it seems as though the countries want to set a path forward for a brighter future. And they're uh, and we're seeing historic agreements with countries that perhaps we would have never imagined uh, would ever take this path. Uh how is that for the region? How, how do you see that developing and that, you know, the, the, through these agreements and the fact that these countries are now brought closer with each other, with trade, um, is that is that a sign uh, of a brighter future? Is that the light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, what are we to expect? Well, um, they say a week is too long in politics. Uh, you know, the international politics is uh, kind of the same nowadays. Uh, international politics is very volatile currently, very difficult to predict. Um, 
but definitely it was a very positive development, the Abraham Accords. Um, I think it was a huge, to a large degree, uh, unpredictable uh, step that was taken. What uh, the accord is based on is on partly the presence of a common perceived enemy, and that's Iran, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran, so to speak. And this is what has given strength and actually maybe to a large degree birth to this accord. Um, now, if this, these divisions go, uh, if these um, hostilities are somewhat resolved, it may somewhat diminish the significance or the strength of these accords. I don't think uh, to a considerably uh, dangerous degree, but I think um, partially it will diminish the strength. So it seems that the conflict between the various players in this region sometimes works to the benefit of some kinds of partnership. I'm not talking about alliance, I'm talking mm -hmm. about partnership. And uh, it may in fact be to the benefit of some, it may be to um, to uh, actually uh, uh, disagreement uh, of others. Um, Iran uh, will be a key factor in what will follow. Currently, Iran has dire economic conditions. It is, um, the country is, if not bankrupt, it's facing bankruptcy. Inflation is rife. It has huge internal problems. It suffers from international isolation. Um, and uh, in contrast, those who have traditionally been opposed, like Saudi Arabia, uh, as the prime Sunni country uh, in opposition to Iran, it's uh, doing rather well. Um, so Iran now uh, perhaps seeing itself cornered internationally and nationally, Mm, felt there was little choice but trying to make amends uh, with Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia, I think, somewhat disappointed by the current US administration mm -hmm. because it uh, failed to provide the security that Saudi Arabia was looking for i.e. when the Saudi oil installations were attacked by Houthis. Mm -hmm. uh, the Biden administration didn't do much uh, for protection of those installations. Then they kind of tried to go it alone or at least present a case to the West, in particular America, that if they would not come forward with more robust uh, steps, 
then they can go their own way. And in this instance, they went to China and uh, Iran. So both Iran and China felt perhaps they could gain from this. China definitely diplomatically by introducing itself, I think, most prominently in 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 the in recent uh, times, uh, China has always been. When I say always, I mean the last decade or two, a very important economic player. But diplomatically, hasn't been as much mm-hmm. now with this agreement between the two West Asian countries. China has established itself also as a player, not as a diplomatic power but definitely as a diplomatic player. Uh, Washington will closely watch this, but I think it's too late to turn the clock back. I think uh, American diplomacy has suffered in this region because of inaction and passivity, uh, and also preoccupation with their own problems, I think, uh, has somewhat um, deprived them of the chance to play the global role that has traditionally been expected of the United States. The US is very polarized, and I think the internal politics of the country play a huge part in the formation of its and the formulation of its foreign policy. You know, just um, on a side note, uh, there's a lot of material um, that has been written and discussed uh, with respect to the Abraham Accords. For anyone listening or watching, you can head on over to strategyinternational.org um, to to read uh, and to get informed. Or even uh, on the YouTube channel that we have, there's some seminars and uh, other. Uh, episodes of this podcast that discuss um, uh, the, the, these agreements uh, more in detail. I want to go back to what you're saying, Farid, about the importance or the the, the small signs of economic partnerships, uh, you know, th- through which uh, the Abraham Accords uh, has kind of established, you know, in the region. And obviously it's very important. I mean, the, the, the links, the economic ties and the links between trade, uh, you know, are what, for example, started the European Union. Um, so definitely when there's this relationship, this trade relationship with countries, it obviously brings them to another level. Um, in, in, your, in your opinion, you know, one of the key issues facing uh, the countries in this region is, uh, in fact, economic development. Um, how can these countries balance the need for economic growth with the need for political stability and social justice um, uh, in the region? Because I feel like that is probably the bigger challenge to address. Very true and very good question. We have to remember the European Union, of course, uh, was formed uh, after two devastating world wars that were started in Europe and afflicted the whole world. We should also remember that the European Union was built uh, during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. It was with American money, a lot of it. I mean, the Marshall Plan that came to Europe, 
and uh, American security, NATO, mm -hmm. that provided security for Western Europe. Without these two, it would have been difficult to see European Union prosper the way it has, or at least it did. Now, those helps were provided by the United States based on the presence of a perceived common enemy, the Soviet Union. Now, exactly the same common perceived enemy, the Islamic Republic of Iran, has given rise to a partnership between the Israelis, the Emiratis, and, and some others. Uh, once that threat goes, maybe ideological differences may again come to prevail. I'm not sure they will, they may come, but we have seen that with the eradication of, of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the eradication of the Cold War. European Union has run into problems. It's not as smooth as it's it used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, now Americans want Europeans to pay a greater share for NATO. And the question of supply of energy has become an issue from where east or where from the east. So this presence of a common enemy plays a great role. Uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran has played that role uh, for Abraham Accords to take place. I'm not saying Iran is the only factor, but mm -hmm. I think it's one of the big factors, major factors that helped shape this accord. Now, if if you were talking about a, a bigger West Asian kind of partnership, then um, extending from what I said, one would have to say then we would have to have a bigger external enemy vis-a-vis uh, -vis West Asia for them to get together. There is no prospect of such an external enemy for West Asia. Uh, therefore, it would have to take place, really take shape, without the force of an external threat. Is that even feasible? Uh, difficult. <laughs> It's, it's, it's rather difficult to, to see that. But the thing is now, Israel is not the common enemy of, the, of Muslims. That has changed now. Now, the Shia Iran has become to a large degree the, the enemy, even though, I mean, we may see some improvements or restoration of diplomatic relations, but the kind of enemy always lurking uh, in the background. Um, don't forget the Shias and Sunnis have been fighting for centuries. The Iranian Shia fought the Ottoman Sunnis for 200 years. Um, and this Shia-Sunni divide has been beneficial to outside players. Mm -hmm. In this instance, uh, Israel may have somewhat benefited from this as well. Um, so I do not see yet, I hope they will come when I can say I can see, I do not see yet the prospect of 
a regional partnership. Uh, number one, there isn't that ideological coherence within this region. Um, not only Sunni Shia, but we have Israel, which is a Jewish, and really no partnership, serious economic partnership, can take place in this region without Israel. Israel economically and technologically is by far ahead, ahead of the rest. And there is no prospect of any external threat to this particular region and that would bring them together. So I'm sorry that I have to speak rather pessimistically uh, about the prospect of, of a regional partnership there. Right. You know, you're mentioning uh, Iran uh, quite uh, often. Uh, I know that you're from Iran. When you think back at what's happening back, uh, at home, uh, the, you know, the situation with, you know, the women, for example, we saw this uprising uh, that got all the world's attention. Um, I fear that, and I don't know, you know, how the news are uh, where you are, but over here, it's not playing as much as it used to on the TV. It's not being addressed as often as it was a couple of months ago. Um, what is happening over there on the ground? Is is there still an uprising? Is there still this force against the regime over there? And do you think that this is at any level close to some change being brought? Okay. Uh, at the outset, allow me to say that uh, sadly, we'll live in an age when media controls the flow of information. Mm -hmm. That's why That's why I started with that. I, I don't know what you get over there because us yeah. it seems to have dissipated, you know? They determine uh, what uh, information people should have and what they shouldn't have. Um, I can recall many instances where there were huge, uh, really savagery and, and um, bloodshed, but Nobody ever heard anything about it. But mm -hmm. then um, if in some other parts there is any simple injury to a demonstrator, it becomes headlined in, in the news. Um, as in Iran, Iran has, uh, yes, has had this issue of uh, public protest against uh, all these uh, theocratic measures are forcing to cover and uh, the way you dress or uh, basically things that we consider to be within the realm of personal choice, but they don't allow for that. Uh, the music you want to hear or the way you want to dress and things of the sort. Uh, even though the problems go deeper than that, it's not just a question of personal uh, choices. I mean, we're talking about economic issues, we're talking about mismanagement, we're talking about corruption. This has been there. Uh, is, is fire under the ashes. It will uh, it'll come up uh, again. Uh, it, periodically, we've seen that's what happens. It used to be every 10 years, then became shorter, and now every two years, every one year, and every six months. Even now there are some and it will flare up again, it will come again. And what will happen in return? I think it may be uh, that the establishment there has learned to infuse a bit of diplomacy and uh, 
good politics, perhaps, I hope, with uh, brute force in order to calm the situation. Now we have a situation where inside the country there are women who walk without head covers. <clears throat> a lot of them, by and large, get away with it. Uh, it's not because the government has changed its views, but it has realized it cannot rely mainly on force, uh, trying to dictate the way people should dress uh, or other matters of uh, their personal lives. Therefore, change is coming, whether it will be very bloody or whether it will be peaceful, it will depend on the response of the government to people's demand for change. I do not think it will be, in, in its most optimistic uh, case, it will be completely peaceful, but I hope at least it will be as at least bloody as possible. Is there any short-term prospect, you know, for democracy or or, or human rights? Um, is there any 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 future that that you can see this uh, uh, being developed uh, in Iran? Uh, what do you think can be done to promote these values there? Yes, I think there are, there are good prospects for that. That I think I'm rather hopeful. Um, uh, it will come, I don't think, in, in not too distant future, mainly because we have a generation, uh, 50 million or so, who don't remember the revolution or the ideology or all those uh, radicalism that was associated with the revolution of 1979. They don't remember that, and they are detached from it. And they are prepared to pay price for change. Um, so as the older generation departs scenery and then the younger generation comes forward, inevitably things will change. But I don't think we are talking about another generation before we can actually see tangible change. I don't think we have to wait 20 years or so. I think uh what you mentioned uh change and uh, freedom democracy and things of the sort should come i would assume between maximum five to ten years wow. it's still interesting because when you consider everything that has happened in that country and in general in that region five to ten years isn't that far ahead considering the scope of you know, the, the the stuff that we've been consuming in the media, for example, or that we've studied or that we've known. And uh, to know that, OK, five to 10 years, it, it, it's a good uh, light of hope. Yeah, uh, I am going to uh, quote Fukuyama. Francis Fukuyama, the writer of the, um, the Last Man and the End of History. He says something uh, very interesting and plausible about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that is that the Soviet Union did not collapse 
when it became uh, illegitimate in the eyes of the Soviet people? No. The Soviet Union had long forsaken, lost its legitimacy before the people. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union collapsed when it lost its legitimacy in the eyes of the leaders of the Soviet Union. Right. So that's exactly what we see in Iran nowadays. I mean, the so-called what called reformists, now they are saying, forget reform. This thing, this is not reformable. We have to change the whole thing. We have to change the whole constitution. People who are diehard radicals now openly question and challenge principles of religious rule. They don't accept it. They, uh, some of them even go further. They challenge the very principles of uh, uh, religious beliefs itself. Uh, and these do not come from traditional atheists or uh, Westerners. These come from people who were themselves uh, part and parcel of the revolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they themselves now, like the, the ending days of the Soviet Union, they themselves feel they have nothing to say. They have lost all legitimacy for ruling the country. I want to go back for a second to the discussion we we're having before um, with the importance of the economic cooperation uh, and engagement of all these countries in the region. <clears throat> and um, how, at least for the moment, we see the success in the, the Abraham Accords, there is uh, quite an important player that is absent, which is Saudi Arabia. Um, and I, I think this is what personally surprised me more than anything, is rather than working on getting Saudi Arabia on board with that agreement, we saw this other direction where Saudi Arabia is trying to um, reestablish diplomatic ties with Iran, which, like you rightfully said, is kind of seen as the odd man out in the region uh, from most of these countries. Um, how important is Saudi Arabia? Obviously, we know it's important in the region, but how crucial is Saudi Arabia for the Abraham Accords and for that deal to work and to be successful and the fact that it seems to be going another direction is that some to be worried about i think it's very important um at least it's important in the sense that it does not oppose it i mean even if it does not join it uh their accord can survive mm -hmm. as long as the saudis do not uh oppose uh, the accord I cannot see the Emiratis, for instance, taking really any position that would be diametrically opposed to those of uh, Riyadh and the Saudi leaders. I think here Biden administration has been rather weak because Saudis, uh, well, officially they said they wanted the, the US to help them with some kind of peaceful nuclear development um, as a precondition to enter, uh, establish diplomatic relations with Israel. Well, the U.S. didn't, but I think it's not just that, if that's at all. I think generally the Saudis feel, unlike 
uh, Trump administration that put Saudi Arabia at the very core. And if you remember, his first trip abroad was to Saudi Arabia, uh, which was a huge, huge visit. Mm-hmm. Now, Biden, it seems, deliberately is uh, is trying to detract from that, is trying to change track. Uh, the particular... Um, uh, I don't know, inaction of the United States in not providing anti-missile rocket or some kind of protection for Saudi uh, for Saudis against the Houthi missiles. This, I think, made them think that um, perhaps uh, they cannot uh, could play a hostage uh, to U.S. policy that may change every four years from uh, Trump to Biden. Mm-hmm. They wanted something more stable uh, than that. I think that is partly why the Saudis didn't follow through, and particularly see Biden everywhere. I mean, he actually mentioned, I think, one or two press conferences, the question of the Saudi man who uh, was disappeared in, in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. I think, um, if I remember the name, Khashoggi or, or yep. something. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, that's, of course, um, terrible that someone should disappear like that. I mean, uh, should be condemned outright. But millions of thousands of people go missing every day all over the world, but we don't see such a fuss being made about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Saudis felt that this is being used uh, as a way to kind of uh, minimize or downgrade uh, relations of Saudi Arabia with the United States or some other capitals. Uh, and and their new uh, Prince Salman, who is the effective leader, probably of of, this, of Saudi Arabia, he's shown to be bold and um, perhaps in some cases uh, not averse to risk taking. Mm-hmm. So there we are. Um. We're going to wrap it up, but uh, Farid, I'm very much fascinated by this. um, It's not an idea. The the, the fact that you've been established in Cyprus and that you've given so much love to this country and you've committed to its history uh, and to teaching uh, in in Cyprus. uh, uh, I mean, maybe it's normal, but for someone from the outside, I mean, my mom is Cypriot uh, to see a a quote-unquote foreigner live in this country and to love it probably uh, almost as equally as local Cypriots. Uh, to me, I, I see it as very fascinating. And the book that you wrote um, immediately piqued my curiosity, uh, The Historical Dictionary of Cyprus. What is that exactly? What are you, what, what are you, what are you writing in this book? Uh, well, it's this is by publisher. Uh, this is, by the way, the second edition. The first edition came out in 2010. I think I brought it up. Um, it's all the major um, social, cultural, historical events, figures, 
monuments uh, that exist in Cyprus on both sides of the island, whether in the government controlled side or on the other side. Uh, they are uh, itemized, so it makes for easy referencing and easy referring to if one wants to find out about anything particular to do with Cyprus, just alphabetically they are listed. But it's not the first book I wrote. My Actually, my very first book was on Cyprus, mm -hmm. International Peacemaking in Cyprus, which was to do with the UN and Cyprus. Mm -hmm. It was my very first book. Um and also now my last book so far is on uh, Cyprus. But um, uh, as as why I am so well, uh, my uh, uh, my wife is from Cyprus. That's I guess in Iran we have a we have a saying that they ask a man where are you from, and in response he says, "I don't know. I'm not married yet." <laughs> 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 there you go that's, that's amazing uh farid i want to thank you uh for your time uh i want to invite everyone again to strategyinternational.org for all information on the beautiful things that are being done at strategy international um we're going to link everything in the description for people to follow you particularly is there anywhere uh in particular that you want to uh, kind of lead our uh, our viewers or listeners to follow you or to 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 pay more attention to the things that you're doing well, I do. Uh, I mean, we've recently started, I mean, I recently started um, uh, putting short articles um, on uh, on a strategy international. Um, I, I also, I used to write regularly for the press. I have stopped for a while. I may begin very soon, but strategy international will have um, all the things, I think a lot of things that I have to say about west asia and matters relating to it fantastic once again thank you so much for for taking the time and thank you everyone for following we're going to see you in the in a in the next episode very very soon thank you very much for having me thank you for take care thank you for listening to the strategy international podcast produced by pod mtl for strategy international Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.